The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So now we're going to devote one talk to just sensual desire. And often when we talk about sensual desire, some people immediately think, oh, sexual desire. And it gets a little bit confused. Sexual desire is subsumed into this umbrella term of sensual desire, and sensual desire including all our senses. Um, <clears throat> but two, two aspects that, that we don't necessarily think right away, oh, this belongs to sensual desire, is um, the desire for comfort. And that comes up a lot in our meditation, right? Um, we fidget, and if we look, you know, this is fear of being uncomfortable. And the other, uh, which came up uh, from this comment this is gentleman made, is that uh, the mental activity can we don't associate with sensual desire, but but it is also part of sensual desire. Uh, if we remember that in Buddhism we talk about six senses, not five, and the sixth is is the mind, the thinking mind. So <clears throat> it would be impossible to live a life without desires, right? Desires are part of an integral part of our life. So the desires are really not a problem. We just want to really learn about desires that bring us happiness and desires that make us a prisoners of whatever it is, the wanting. It's also really, I think, often the case that we have an association with uh, that enjoying the sensual desire is, is a problem. And we want to uh, make sure that, you know, if it's something that has come our way and it's a skillful thing to do, yes, enjoy it by all means. A beautiful piece of music that you're listening to, a, a delicious meal that somebody has prepared for us. Yes, enjoy it fully. Be very mindful of it in the moment. Enjoy it. And when it's done, let it go. Don't grasp to it. So, you know, it's just something that, that we practice with, with it. So one of the, the discoveries I made a, a few years ago, um, I had just gone on retreat and... You know how it is when you go back to work the first day, you definitely are in a very different place. So um, I was there at work, and somebody brought a box of chocolates and put it smack in the center of the working area. And, you know, I saw how everybody went and started to help themselves. And for some reason I thought, well, why don't I just watch myself and see... What happens if I don't take one? What, 
what happens through the day. So it ended up being a very interesting experiment for me because I was able to notice how different level of energies, different motivations really made a big, big change in the level or intensity of the wanting. So, for example, I noticed at some point that there was a little bit of distraction. I felt this movement of wanting. It wasn't that strong. Okay, I caught it myself. I didn't take it. A little later, there was a sense, subtle, but there was a little bit of boredom. I wanted it. It's a little stronger. You know, boredom is not easy to be with. A little bit later in the afternoon, tiredness. Ah, now I really wanted the chocolate because we know chocolate gives you a little mmph. So I wanted it more. But when it got the hardest was when I was, I was doing some task and it got challenging. And then I felt a little bit, you know, this undermining of my abilities. I want the chocolate. And then there was really a strong desire of wanting the chocolate. So <clears throat> when I thought of, when we were ta- Diana and I were talking about uh, doing this day long, I thought, you know, I'd love to share this experiment with everyone. And so that's why we've set up this table. And I invite you to, if you wish, I put some pieces of paper there and pens, and write for yourself so you kind of keep a log. You don't have to write it if you don't want to. But just observe yourself in a very kind way, humorous way, please. What happens with you? Is it easy for you to walk by? Is there curiosity? Do you want it? If you want it, why do you want it? What's underneath? Always what's underneath? What's your body like? What's your energy like? What's your mood like? And keep it, you can keep the paper with you. And at the end of the day, it would be very interesting if people feel like sharing. It's like, what what did we learn about it? When we experience it directly is when it really, this practice makes sense. It's comfortable to hear about it. But it's so important to experience it directly. A few years ago, when we were still doing retreats at Hidden Villa um, on a Sunday... We were into a two-week retreat with Gil, and you know, the meditation hall was really, really quiet. We'd been going for about six, seven days. And as you know, you might know, in Hidden Villa on, on a Sunday, families come and children are there. And so they're kind of like half a mile. Well, no, I don't know what the distance would be, but close enough that you can hear them from the meditation hall. <clears throat> So we were all sitting very quietly meditating and um, hearing the families go by, talking, and suddenly this one little girl had a temper tantrum. She started screaming and crying, and suddenly we could hear crystal clear into meditation hall, I want, I want, I want! 
And it was so wonderful for us. It was very hard for us to keep quiet and still because it was just so perfect. What, what, what she was just screaming is what, you know, is how we feel so, so often. You know, it's just when something goes wrong, what wants come up. So with the wanting, of course, there's a whole spectrum of intensity. And um, the problem, of course, we know is when it's really, really intense, when we're dealing with something like addiction. And then we're not free anymore, right? Then it becomes something that um, we are like puppets, we want to learn to differentiate in our desires from the simple desire to the tension associated with craving. So <clears throat> I think that's enough and now we'll just have a 15 minutes meditation So let's begin by connecting with our breath. Allowing the body to settle.
moment I invite you to investigate is there any want, any wanting right now? And how are you relating to that wanting? Is it possible to be totally honest with what is? And just bring a kind acceptance to it. We can also bring curiosity to our wanting. It has a body component. How does the body feel in the presence of this wanting? It has an energetic component. How is my energy right now?
It has an emotional component. What are my emotions like right now? It has a cognitive component. What ideas do I have? related to this wanting. What stories do I tell myself about this wanting? It has a motivational component. What motivation fuels my wanting right now?
So now is an opportunity to kind of check in. What was that like? So Andrea talked about different components of sensual desire, the physical component, mental component, emotional, motivational. What was that like to, um, to investigate and to explore or to even realize that there are all these different facets to something that we perhaps before thought was so simple? So we'd love to hear, how, what was that like? Um, I had this desire for my meditation period to be ideal or perfect. <laughs> and um, it was just this strong desire behind it for like self-improvement or like attaining something. And then I noticed towards the end I was getting really restless because I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything that was helping me or benefiting me in any way. So that's what I discovered. Hmm. That's fantastic. All kinds of things there, right? <laughs> Would anybody else like to share? I'm not sure. Is the microphone on? So you said comfort when you were talking, and then I just couldn't stop talking, thinking about it. Like, <laughs> my neck hurts, my feet hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it was... I hadn't sort of identified comfort as one of the sensual pleasures. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it just, like, dominated the whole thing. Like, I, I was having trouble sort of not noticing even a slight bit of discomfort. Yeah, and how did you feel about noticing that? <laughs> it's like... Can I get up and stand in this meditation? <laughs> Can I run away from this somehow? <laughs> was mostly what I was trying to figure uh-huh. out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it was. Uh, and, and I guess sort of thinking about comfort as as one of those central desires is because it feels like it's. I'll, I'll. I feel entitled to be comfortable. Yes, yes that's interesting. Yeah. Comfort is a big one for. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Everyone. I even cook out of comfort food books and, you know, but the idea that that's a sensual pleasure, that is mm-hmm. looking, trying to figure out what's underneath that is, is a big one. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out because I, I agree. I think comfort is, it's paramount. And I don't think we should underestimate how powerful it is if we can learn to be just a little bit more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right, then we won't get pushed around so much where we would be able to maybe stay and listen when somebody is telling about a terrible diagnosis they received. You know, if we could just be stay with that uncomfortableness or instead of lashing out at our partner or our spouse or something, if we could instead just stay with that uncomfortableness. So a big part of kind of working with the hindrances is to help us not be pushed around by these so much. Thank you. So um, I'd like to um, talk a little bit more about this comfort because I have this, um, I guess, dilemma or reverse problem. Um, So maybe, Andrea, you can relate to it, being 
having been a ballerina, um, you know, we we dance on bleeding feet and we smile. Mm -hmm. And this is how I've been conditioned. So now that I have this illness, um, I have debilitating pain and in my head. Um, and um, that gets triggered and aggravated by many things, one of which is the air conditioning. And so I felt really, really uh, uncomfortable uh, during this meditation. And, you know, relating to what you are saying, it was kind of like, okay, how much more can I keep going? Am I going to have to leave and not stay here? And, you know, I feel that for me, it's, it's not what you are describing about staying with discomfort because I've perfected this. Uh, it's actually really realizing that there is discomfort right now and, and it's, you know, I, I have to be real. It's, it's not comfortable, but it's not, I don't need to like win a medal of <laughs> <laughs> staying with discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know how you would look at this in terms of hindrance. You know, I'm kind of lost about that. Well, I, I wanted to actually to, to ask you something. Um, it's wonderful, the example that you bring. It is, of course, very familiar to me, too. You know, this idea of you are putting up a front when you're performing, and yes, your, your toes are bleeding, but you show yourself completely with poise, grace, weightless, and smiling. What's the difference between that response or that presenting yourself to what you're experiencing now as far as how you work with it? Um, this is an existential question for me. Mm -hmm. Something that I've never realized actually and it's only um, two, three weeks ago I went to a retreat and I had a breakdown. And mm. I realized that I wasn't real uh, because I was always in kind of this performing, I'm fine role. Um, but I'm very ill. But no one knows, you know, I'm sharing here, but um, I, it's this automatic, I'm fine. And so it's kind of like I'm, this is very new for me this month to really, you know, answer the second part of your question and really dig into, I'm not fine, there is discomfort. So even in this short meditation session, where I could, I could feel the pain um, growing in my head, there was this voice inside me, it was like, you know, you have a hat on, you have your blanket, you can handle it. Like, kind of, don't even feel it. Mm -hmm. Like, try to block Mm -hmm. yeah, um, I mean yeah. that's kind of like what you do to smile and present but like it's kind of like I do that to me internally <laughs> um, and I don't need to but I do that mm. yeah there are some things that are that are, that are the same uh, in, the, in both examples or that that work in both and then some that are different but I'm glad you mentioned the, this aspect of performance, of course, it's essential. Here, 
part of mindfulness is to be totally real, right? Totally real to our innermost core of what's happening. And performance is just the visual. Is that what are we presenting out there? Um, but, but we can bring from our experience the, uh, the discipline that, that, you, that you developed, the grace and ease that, that you developed also can be brought into the challenge right now. That grace and dignity that, that you know how it feels in the body can now be brought to just a felt sense. Not necessarily how it looks, but just a felt sense. Yeah, it's okay. Never thought about it that way. <laughs> Good luck. Anybody else would like to comment? Um, okay, the green light's on. So I think I was, um, when we started the meditation, I was still back with food on the table. As, and, you know, I've struggled many years with food as comfort. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when, when is that food Helping you cover, helping me cover up something, some feeling, and so in the meditation, I realized that I even was kind of okay. Well, what am I going to cook for dinner? I mean, I had this whole grocery store scene, mm-hmm. and I thought, what's going on here? And um, I think some of it was um, covering up some sense of maybe it's unsafe or mm. something like that. I mean, that's kind of the closest I could get. But so it was, it was really interesting. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And bring lots of tenderness when you get to what's underneath. Yeah. When you, at the beginning of the meditation, when you <clears throat> suggested, I don't, finding a, a strong desire, mm-hmm. uh, for me, it wasn't a sensual desire. As in my mind, it was. I have a really strong desire to help my children get past some psychological issues mm. that they inherited from me and my wife growing up. Mm. You know, it's kind of one of these generational things. Uh, psychological issues are passed along from <laughs> parent to child, and that's really the thing I'm, I want most right now, which is a good thing. It's mm-hmm. good that I want that, mm-hmm. but it turns into really overpowering desire that turns into uh, anxiety and Lord. grasping and it just becomes really strong uh, so it, again I don't see that as a sensual desire but it's right. a desire that uh, really affects my uh, affects me yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah these only become hindrances when they obscure that's for our, our being able to see clearly or to bring the most wisdom and compassion that we have to whatever's happening. Right? As you pointed out, just having desire. This is a wholesome desire, of course, right? To have your kids do well. But it's when, we, when it uh, prevents us from being the best version of ourselves, it's when it's a hindrance. Yes, Linda. Um... I checked my phone uh, during the break, 
because I wanted to see if my daughter had remembered that today was the 34th anniversary of her father's death. She has remembered um, every year. And I wanted to see if she'd remembered yet. And she had. Um, And she was asking, um, I wonder what he'd think if he could see us now. And so then I was like, (laughs) a little bit angry with, well, um, what about me? You know, um, what, how should the widow be treated this, you know, anyway, and um, a little bit angry, and, but I responded with, um, well, I'm sure he's, you know, happy with everything, but I I still came away with that desire for, um, well, what about me, you know, Um, and I'll go have another cookie. (laughs) 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 That'll fix it. (laughs) And then, um, and then during the meditation, I missed the first part because I was in the restroom, but I did come up with, um, I hope I didn't eat so many cookies that now I'm going to be uncomfortable um, because I've overeaten, because that's my go-to spot is to just eat past comfort, um, especially things that'll tweak my blood sugar level. Anyway, so it was all about me. and um, <laughs> But I did manage to, you know, put the Band-Aid on, on the kids' feelings and... Um, and and I hope leave a good impression of their father, and I resent that too, <laughs> you know. So it's like I'm kind of kind of stuck with I don't know, just being resentful. <laughs> Do you, you want to say something? <clears throat> no, I just well, well done that you noticed you saw clearly you know, this desire to you know, cover up by having cookies that's that's what that's that's the whole purpose of this investigation to really look underneath thank you so as a way to investigate some more of this idea of sensual desire and how it plays out in our world and affects us again we'll um, get into some small groups and um, have a discussion Um, I guess maybe we'll get into the groups first, but maybe I'll talk about the format first. So similar like we did with the larger group when there was five of you, where a person starts, and then the next person speaks, and then the next person, and then the next person, and you go around in a circle. Yeah, so I would like to encourage that. There doesn't have to, just, right, the, the group will be a little bit smaller now, but just this idea of going around in the circle that we can learn from each other. And plus, um, it's less that we have to, for others' benefit, that we have to tell them an exact story, but it's more an opportunity for us to explore for ourselves. So you don't have to tell them all the background information in order to tell the, um, kind of the punchline, so to speak. You can just say the, um, the tidbit or the, I don't know, the main point about it. 
And allow yourself to be influenced by what other people say. It may remind you of something. You may um, think of an aspect of your experience that you hadn't thought of before. So um, let's break up into groups of three. And then there'll be one group of... Oh, no, I guess there'll be three groups of three. And let's count off. So we can start with you, Linda. Can you be one? Two, and then one. I guess, two. yeah. One. Two. One. one. So remember your numbers, and then what? Yeah, why don't you get into your groups? So uh, ones can be over here. Um, twos up there on the stage, and threes right here. Yeah, we can rearrange the chairs and we can reassemble everything. Okay, so here's here's the question. And we'll, again, we'll start with uh, the person with the shortest hair goes first. So when a sensual desire arises, whether it's desire for food or, you know, I, I don't this something else, it arises mostly often because of a, uh, a reason, right? It's for, there's a cause or there's a condition underneath it. And knowing that we can use wisdom to help us here with um, these things that are sensual desires. So is there a wise way, a sustainable way to limit what you see, what you hear, what you experience, so that unwanted sensual desires do not arise. For example, I know that it's best if I do not take a shortcut through the cookie aisle when I'm at the grocery store. Right? It's just natural when I'm walking by that I start to think like, oh yeah, I can put this in my cart. Right? So I've just made it a practice to not go down that aisle because I, it's, it just leads to outcomes that don't really serve me in the big picture. So is there a way that you can wisely limit what you see, what you hear, or experience so that unwanted sensual desires do not arise? And again, one person can speak, and then you can just go around the circle, and then I'll ring the bell in um, a few minutes. Thanks. Yourself. So mm-hmm. the two mm-hmm. separate like things, yeah. Yeah, and it, come to find out, our physiology friends, our neurologist friends, have shown like with brain imaging and with measuring neurotransmitters that this actually is true. That's if we can find pleasure areas in the brain, that there's more with the anticipation than with the actual reward. It's interesting. This is something for us to kind of keep in mind as we're pursuing our sensual pleasures or sensual desires. I'm sorry? Oh, fantastic. Do you want to say, Sylvie? Yeah, and I remember it vividly. It was um, 
happened a few times, but a few days ago I was very aware of it. And um, I woke up in the morning and it was a beautiful day after the rain. And I said, I'm going to walk the dish today. Um, this beautiful trail. And I woke up and I was so happy that I was going to walk. And all morning and lunchtime, oh, it's going to be such a great day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk the dish today. And when I got there, I really enjoyed every second. And I remembered, oh, when I woke up this morning, I thought about it. And I was like, wow, I get to enjoy it like it's double enjoyment. <laughs> um, so I had the opposite um, Yes, it works that way, right? But it's it's not always what we expect it's going to be, right? Maybe that's something for us to keep in mind. Sometimes it is, right? That we it, maybe it's because I wasn't, I didn't have expectation of what it was going to be. Oh. My only expectation was I get to hike today, mm-hmm. and the sun is out. Yeah. So I got there. The sun was still out. <laughs> I was walking, and I was happy. Great. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think on the on the kind of the anticipation versus uh, actual satisfaction, I can see like I I've always like this this kind of achievement orientation that I always had, and um, actually, so this so there's there's actually there's a mathematician, isn't it? Um, he kind of solved this problem, Fermat's last theorem. He was kind of pretty famous. I think he's he spent eleven years, I think, uh, kind of basically being cut off from from the world because he would go to university, come back home, lock the doors, and solve the problem. He would go. So he couldn't solve it for 11 years. He was just kind of, and then he solved it, and then he was, just got into depression after that. He mm. said that it's like he just kind of, his life just got away after this. Like mm. there's nothing else to do. So he loved that 11 years, although it was not very good for him either. Uh, and that's kind of, I'm thinking about like, I, I wanted like certifications and, uh, you know, I have to do other things and I have like about 18 odd certifications and, but I, I don't enjoy what I already got and I'm thinking about the next ones and that there's like kind of the level of restlessness. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking like, it's actually better if I don't get the next one. I'll just kind of keep it in front <laughs> of me and I'll do other things. So the anticipation will keep me happy. <laughs> And also, like, I think another thing is kind of thinking about knowing that this hasn't given me what I mm-hmm. wanted, thinking about, like, death and, you know, how what I really want, and maybe this is not what I want. I mean, it can still be what I will get, but not what I should be, kind of just after, like, craving. is Just kind of more like an intellectual... Um, buy-in uh, i'm still trying to get the practical buy-in in my life of this this concept <laughs> i think that's how Thank it you. starts right as at first we understand something and then with that understanding we just kind of naturally start to let go or to stop to go a certain go down a certain path once we see uh, or once we really look at it and see oh it's not as great as perhaps i thought it was or it's not as fulfilling as i thought it was going to be or something like that i've been trying to use that um, when I have a desire, I try to imagine what it's going to be like after fulfilling it. And it's actually really helpful, like the cookie test. <laughs> so I'm there, I want lots of cookies. But I know I'm going to feel really bad afterwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I only had one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I really enjoyed that one because I was only going to have the one. Um, 
but it's help, the whole idea of looking past the fulfillment to see how things are going to be afterwards is really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. We can. We all have wisdom. We all have experience, and part of this practice is just to help us access that and to recognize when are we under the sway of a hindrance? When is it kind of coloring our perspective so that we can't see clearly and be, perhaps behave the most wisely? So should we? Switch gears and mm-hmm. talk about the opposite of desire. Is that true? Is it 15? No, here, 15 minutes. Okay. So, one of the wonderful things about these lists is that there is so much wisdom in the order they appear. And with the hindrances, if we look at the first one is sensual desire, which is considered in Buddhism like one of the most important areas to study because it's so big. And then the, we you can see that the other side of that coin is ill will. So they're a pair. Why are they a pair? Because they're both about wanting. One wants something, I lean forward for it. The other one I don't want, so it's ill will or aversion. So it's the opposite Now, what's interesting about this pair is that it has a lot of energy, and this is something that some of you have already touched upon. The wanting keeps us kind of energized. Um, Gil even calls it the the caffeine effect. You know, it's like, I want, and you have this, this kind of anticipation or energy going out towards something. But you also put energy in there, no, I don't want and so uh, it, it, we, without realizing, a lot of us are addicted to this caffeine of the wanting and not wanting. And it's interesting to think that many people confuse this life of um, equanimity and being free of desire and aversion as boring and that a life full of wants and dramas and aversions and ill will as, yeah, that's, that's living life fully, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a misconception of what it means to live fully. You know, this 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 wanting to do too much, everything fast, speaking too much, uh, not, not discerning, that keeps us in this uh, intensity that can give us the false impression that we're living life fully. But life can be lived in a very deep way with equanimity. We don't have to have these yo-yo effects of emotions up and down and wants and hates and dramas to, to really live our lives fully. So with aversion, as uh, Diana mentioned earlier, there are healthy versions of uh, aversion you know, when when there is injustice, we don't, we, we, it's, it's natural. It's, it's the right thing to feel, no, this isn't right. 
for aversion to be a hindrance, there has to be the element of wanting to harm somebody, of the ill will. I beg your pardon? Exactly. Yeah. It can be in both directions. Yeah. So, I think we all know how terribly uncomfortable it is to be under the effect of ill will in our bodies, right? The body contracts. There's a lot of, there's a lot of tension. It's painful to be under the influence of ill will or aversion. So it's very natural that we want to run away from it. But again, in this practice, what we want to do is be with it. And can we just practice checking in with the body and softening practicing softening the body around this focus that, or this aversion that we have. Also very important is when we are working with ourselves and, and trying to bring ease into the contracted body is that we shift the attention from the outside of the object of ill will or aversion that's usually where the attention goes, right? Oh, that person is blah, 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 or I don't want that thing or whatever. So it's out there. So the energy goes out. And what we want to do is turn that attention, that energy back to us and just see, okay, how, how does it feel? Do I want to continue fueling this? How can I support myself to soften I find the image that the Buddhist teachings present for ill will very telling. It, it, uh, you're asked to imagine a vessel with water, but the water is boiling. So the ill will is boiling. I mean, that gives you that sense of discomfort. You know, when you're angry, you do feel like you're boiling, right? A way that um, it's described in the Dharma when we are freed of ill will is that it is compared to getting over an illness. So if you remember how we feel the first day we awake from a long period of being ill and there's a first sense of, I think I'm better. That, that sense of release, of relief, that's the sense that comes when, uh, that we is comparable when we have managed to free ourselves from ill will. So learning to relax ourselves the thinking muscle in the body in relation to ill will is important. 
And we also can help ourselves by cultivating the antidotes to ill will. For example, goodwill, friendliness, or loving-kindness. It's important to realize that aversion is aversion, but we don't have to have aversion to the aversion. So aversion is there. (laughs) Yes, so we notice, okay, there is aversion right now. Okay, the hindrance is there. But am I able to not have aversion to the aversion? So it's, again, how do we relate to the hindrance? That we will come back over and over with each hindrance because that is so essential. It's not a problem, really, if the aversion or if the... any of the hindrances arise. It's how do we hold it? How, how do we relate to it that, that is essential and that, we, that, that it's where we want to practice? I like to uh, come up with simple things to, to do in our daily lives to free ourselves from aversion and I don't know if you've seen commercials that they when you're when somebody's cleaning they scream with all this kind of a, like all this horrible thing we need to get rid of and and often we do that too when we're cleaning right it's like ah this grunge we have to get rid of it and practice some time cleaning your house without aversion just kind of like a very pleasant like a dance, you're feeling the movement and, you know, just knowing that just like ill will and aversion comes up in our minds and we try to practice mental hygiene, so in our house, grunge and dirt and dust comes up and we also practice cleaning. It's that constant change. So... We are now ready for a group discussion that Diana will lead. Yeah, I'm thinking we'll just do this as the larger group here. So just as an opportunity to explore this idea of ill will a little bit more, here's a question, and we'll just, um, if you want to answer it, we'll answer, we'll pass the microphone around as we've been doing. So just like we with essential desire, this idea of that right, it doesn't um, arise from nowhere. There are reasons why we feel it will. It's often prompted by an event or a thought or a sensation. But often we know that um, there are certain events, thoughts, sensations that will tend to make us angry. We just know historically, we know ourselves, that there are certain things that make us angry make us mad. So how can you prepare yourself for things that you anticipate will make you angry? What can you do beforehand to help you not lose yourself in anger? What can you do? I liked this expression, Andrea, this mental hygiene. (laughs) What kind of mental hygiene, perhaps, can you do? It doesn't have to be a mental thing, but... If you are anticipating that something will make you angry, what can you do to help 
um, create the conditions that you won't get swept away by the anger. There may be some ill will that arises, but that you can still be present with it and still uh, work with it. Since I already have the microphone, (laughs) the thing that works best for me is to accept the boiling. Mm. Just accept that I'm boiling and not try to do anything about it. Um, And... uh, and then I can I can get through that, and I haven't acted out. I don't have the regret of having acted out, which I always do. And I was telling one of my groups that I spent a lot of time on the freeway. I had a lot of opportunity to get really angry at people. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, but afterwards, if I acted out, you know, angry honking or whatever, I just feel crummy. Mm. Uh, so it's a lot better actually to accept the boiling and let just let it cool off. <laughs> I, I wonder, is there something that you can do to help you not feel angry it, to begin with when you're driving on the freeway? I've been exploring that. Um, and I haven't gotten... Very, well, the only thing I do is drive in the second lane because there's so much merging in, from the, in the right lane that it, it sets me off. So there's a little bit of, of not avoiding the cookie aisle in it. And I've, I've been sort of exploring for ways I can sort of prepare myself... Uh, uh, so I don't go, you know, I don't get and start boiling. I haven't gotten very far. Yeah, uh, maybe I'll just. Uh, well, we'll see what, if anybody else has something to say. Then we'll. Uh, earlier, you mentioned about aversion, and uh, then ill will and anger. So, are you suggesting they are related in some way? Yeah. So, it, so. We usually talk about the second hindrance being ill will or aversion, and and anger is subsumed within that. As you will see that it, it, this list is kind of like a, a condensed list of many uh, states, and you can come up with something like, for example, jealousy, and say, oh, "Okay, well, it has several components of the of the hindrances, right?" If you think about it. So it's, it's just, uh, how can we reduce it to its minimum? These five are the most essential, like the primary colors. And then uh, the others are subsumed are variations of one or several of them. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I've not, I guess aversion I've never experienced with ill will. I've, I experienced aversion uh, a lot, actually, procrastination or not having difficult conversations. Um, I almost never experience ill will, maybe once in a blue moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do experience anger. It's like the kind of the, in the moment and goes away. And I, 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 what I, I guess, relate ill will is when I kind of keep it and make it personal and not like a situation-based. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, um, anger is... If you said something and I'm super unhappy about it, then that's anger. But if I'm unhappy about you, that's ill will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've always experienced the anger, like, but not ill will. But aversion, not in this situation at all. Aversion is completely in other situations. So for me, it's a little different, I guess. And maybe, yeah, maybe there's another way to look at it. I don't know. You can look at it as a spectrum. Hmm. You know, I mean, aversion can be something very mild. Like, oh, you know, I, I don't like that, this light right now. It's just aversion to the, to the light. But, but ill will already has this, this sense. It's, it's 
can be very intense and it has this sense of I want to harm something or somebody. So here, it's all within that spectrum. Would you like to add something, Dan? Oh, maybe what I'll add is that um, when these are our hindrances, that means that they are really influencing us and getting in their way of our standing up and feeling grounded and in uh, with a certain amount of equanimity with what's happening. So maybe we could think of it as just that the hindrance that uh, influences us that's about pushing away in whatever way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's it's complicated if we're trying to, you know, be very precise with here or with exactly what goes where. But I think anger is uh, something that we experience often enough, and it's worthwhile for us to look at. So related to the the question of ta- tactics for anger, right? If we anticipate something yeah, will anticipate trigger us, what can we do? Um, yes. Yeah, so. Um, Two types, I mean, I guess it's the same in, in, in kind of um, asynchronous communication. So email or phone calls or things like that. So um, there are um, two family members that I know every time I will get a voicemail or an email, I will be angry. Mm-hmm. And um, so I delete the voicemail without listening to them. And I archive the emails for maybe at some point I'll be really calm. The conditions will be right that I can read the email, but I don't want it to ruin my day. Uh, so those have been the tactics I've been using, and I've had a lot less anger in my life. Uh, I have to be careful because the, the anger actually increases my pain. So I really mm-hmm. have to be careful about managing uh, anger. But then... As we're talking about this and being in the bucket of aversion, I'm like, okay, my tactics are actually aversion. <laughs> my ta- you know, if, if anger is in the bucket of aversion, uh, my tactic is actually aversion, right? So um, I get confused now. <laughs> I think w- w- many of us, have more than one hindrance, right, that we use at different times. Of course we do. And I don't want us to get too tangled up in what exactly fits in there unless you feel like you need some more explanation because I agree, we could spend a lot of time talking about does this fit in here or in there? or It doesn't have to be precise. Yes, but how do you feel about dealing with by doing Oh, I'm sorry, Sylvia, I misunderstood. So having aversion to aversion. My way of dealing with aversion is to avoid aversion, mm-hmm. which is aversion, right? So, like, I know I'm going to get angry. I delete those voicemails before I even listen to them. So delete, the act of deleting the voicemail is a form of aversion. You know, it depends. It depends yeah, in what. It, you know, it depends how you do it. There is something to what he's saying. So, so you you might want to check really what's going on inside you. Is there a very soft, 
sense inside that says, you know, right now I know it's not the right thing for me to do. I need to take care of myself. The most intelligent thing for me is not to open myself to this. Delete. That was not aversion, that was self-care. And wisdom. Um, my aversion on myself. Hmm. And so I'm learning to, um, so I'm, I have a lot of uh, self-loathing as a result of this habit. Um, and it's an emotional habit that I was taught as a child. Um, so um, I'm learning um, metta. I'm learning um, to, um, if something is going to trigger me, um, what can I do? I can set up um, safeguards ahead of time um, of detachment. I've had to go into some um, family situations where I knew there was a lot of hostility. And so I would ride with someone safe, um, stay in the presence of someone safe, um, debrief after, and just give me a, give myself a lot of self-care, of meta. Um, I also, if I know that something's going to trigger me, I will um, maybe set a time limit, uh, how long I'm going to do it, because a lot of activities that I, I feel like I need to do um, and want to do, want to work through, say, I'm in the process of distributing somebody's um, genealogical material and photographs from, you know. Anyway, so it, that triggers me. And so I'll do it for a little while. I'll set a time limit. Um, or allow myself to be distracted by the cat, who's a great limit setter. If she wants to be petted, it's like, okay, this is must I must have done the the bad, you know, the the loathsome task long enough. The cat is the timer, you know. Um, so I actually will set it like a time limit, and I'll I'll go do something I really like to do, or that's really relaxing for a certain amount of time and then come back. So I, I do it that way so that I can get some of these hard things done. I think that's fantastic. You mentioned a few things. Metta, so loving kindness meditation, which is like the opposite of um, ill will. Being with a person who can help create uh, some stability maybe or some safety. Some time limits, like I'm only going to be exposed to these things for a certain duration. And maybe having the cat around, allowing yourself to be soothed also by uh, something else that's completely independent from what's happening. I think that's great. Thank you, Linda. So I might want to add, um, when, when you find yourself 
falling back to the sense of, of self-loathing. I want to ask yourself, uh, when you see it, it's what function, or what, what, is, what function does it have for, of my doing this to myself? You know, what, what is the purpose? What, does, what, is the, what is the result? Well, I think it's... So, not, not that you need to answer now, but, but, but do ask yourself in the moment that, that, that it comes so that you don't automatically fall into it. Yeah, one of the things I've been using, because um, I've been angry a lot about, about a lot of work situations, is um, some of the people that sort of I know will trigger me, um, I picture them as, their, as children. <laughs> and that does help <laughs> me draw on a little more <laughs> compassion and yeah. understand that, you know, even if they're, you know, if, if we disagree or, or, you know, they've grown into somebody that, that sort of triggers me, that there's probably a moment in time when they were adorable. <laughs> um, <laughs> I haven't completely 100% gotten that one, but but most of the time. So, so the other thing is, is I do a lot of compliance work at at um, and and I find that a lot of people, in order to say no, um, actually have to get angry. Mm-hmm. No is a very mm-hmm. difficult thing. So I actually start, have started practicing with my group, saying no with a warm heart. Yes. So saying no, I understand that's what you need, that's what you think you need right now, but that's you know, that's that's not what can happen. But really trying not to in order to do things, in order to get through the discomfort, not sort of closing the heart, but trying to actually practice, even with safe people, how do you say no without sort of crunching down and locking your jaw and yeah. bringing yeah. those angry feelings up. And it's so, so it's, it's hilarious to watch people do this, but, it's, uh, but yeah, it seems, it seems to sort of take the edge off. Yeah. yeah, this ability of setting limits without aversion. Can you take care of yourself? Setting firm limits to, with other people but doing so clearly, firmly, without aversion. Can be done. Yeah, thank you. So there's um, at least two strategies. One's probably more... I'll, I'll start with the simpler one is to kind of lower your expectations um a lot of times people get angry because they think things should be like like the way they want them to Mm be um and they you know usually aren't um so if we just quit having that expectation or say you know what the freeway is going to be crowded (laughs) they're going to throw those flares down there you know pretending to sweep the road and dirtying it and slowing it down at the same time and that's just the way it is it's gonna happen and it's like you know just kind of um, i mean you know your low expectations may not always be met and then there'll be a little joy that things work out but they don't have to work out um. great thank you I, I would like to offer that there's a certain um ease that can happen when we are with things just as they are, without any expectations, whether that they are, whether they meet them or not meet them, but just this is just how things are. So what you just said was very helpful for me because I just realized I have expectations as to how people should behave on the freeway. 
Mm. I mean, really strong expectations. Like, we take turns when we're merging. And if somebody doesn't do that, it's like, ah. So that's, that's very helpful. I'm going to try to lower my expectations. Thanks. Or you could use uh, merging as an opportunity to practice generosity. <laughs> right, right. It's a way to kind of make your heart warmer. I'll try that too. <laughs> yeah, no, one of my favorite books on this subject too is The Five Things in Life You Cannot Change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's David Rico. Rico, Rico. Yeah. And one of them is, is not everybody is... Not everybody basically is loyal or kind, you know, because so, that's always my expectation. Everybody's going to be loyal and kind. Everybody's going to have that same sort of basis. And when that doesn't get met, then, then the anger is right there. But anyways, that, that, that book, like, gave me so much relief to just be sort of the things, there are just things that mm-hmm. are. And if I keep getting angry at that, I may as well just, you know, shout at a wall. So, you know, it, it, it did give me a lot of relief just mm-hmm. to recognize that. It's another saying, too, that expectations are planned resentments. Yeah. Expectations are planned resentments. Planned. Planned. Yeah, we can just say, well, I know I have to be on the freeway, and it's, it, there's a range of ways it can be, and I'll get on the freeway and see how it is without you know, having this idea of exactly how it's going to be or not to be. I know this isn't, it's, uh, it's easier to talk about this than to actually do it. <laughs> but I want to plant the seed that there is, there's a, a real sense of ease of, of not fighting with reality, not fighting with what's actually happening. Just saying, okay, this is the way it is right now. Can I be with this? So do you think that, are we ready for a lunch break? I think so. Yes. yes. Time. So do you want to send us off on lunch? Yes. So for those who want to have lunch in silence, we will set tables inside, and the chairs are over on this side. People who want to talk, we invite you to go out. And uh, please help yourself to tea. And there are microwaves in the kitchen, to, if you brought some food that you want to heat up. And any questions? How long? We will come back at one thirty. <clears throat> so yeah. Yep. Gives you plenty of time to eat slowly and enjoy. Okay, enjoy your lunch. <laughs>